Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about entrepreneurship. More specifically, we're talking about the need as a business owner to be keenly aware of your key performance indicators at any given moment, as well as how to use those figures to tell a compelling story to investors, employees, and other stakeholders. In the world of startups, a lot of emphasis gets placed on cap tables and who owns what. Potential clients want to see a fully diluted picture of equity ownership among you as a founder, any co-founders or partners, early investors, key employees, etc., before they'll seriously consider handing over a check to invest themselves. That's because a healthy cap table illustrates not only your business's potential for growth in the future, it also communicates to your investors just how solid your judgment is as a CEO. But if that's the case, then why do so many founders choose to put on blinders when it comes to the financials and simply say to themselves that one day they'll grow big enough to afford a CFO and that's the moment when they'll dig in and start to focus more on it? One could argue that without focusing on the numbers, your company may not make it to that point. One could also argue that by ignoring important documents such as profit and loss statements and balance sheets, you may not even know what to look for in a potential CFO hire. And while I'm certainly passionate about the importance of building an appreciation for the numbers, regardless of whether you ever grow to love them or not, I am by no means the expert here. So I decided to call up someone who is. My guest, Jason Ray is the founder and chief investment officer at Zenith Wealth Partners, an independent financial advisory firm with an approach rooted in education and collaboration focused on serving institutions and small businesses. Jason founded Zenith to deliver accessible, high-quality financial education and advice to institutions. His work is influenced by a passion for social justice and exposing wealth inequality wherever it exists. Jason serves on the boards of the Vetri Foundation and Cannon Dow Elm Foundation, He holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in politics from Princeton University. And while at Princeton, Jason was actually an all-conference football player uh, and league champion. So with that brief introduction, welcome Jason Ray to the Tech Money Podcast. Thanks, Malcolm. Great to be here. Yeah, man. And I I appreciate you uh, agreeing to come on and do this. And I I breezed through your resume really quickly there in my intro. But what else uh, should I have included? You know, big component for me, Malcolm, is, you know, I'm the, the father of a 13-month-old baby girl. I'm a proud husband, and I also still enjoy playing a range of sports, including basketball, running track, riding my bike, and I live in Philadelphia. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad that you thought to get that little one in there. I always tell people, like, your kids may just happen to listen to this one day. And we want to make sure that like they they like what they hear because, you know, our future's in their hands someday when we become older people. So I'm glad you managed to 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 slip the uh, the little one in there as well as part of the, the conversation. But, you know, because I know you personally. Right. I know that one of the core tenants of the firm, if you will, is to do good work in the communities that are traditionally overlooked, you know, both in your backyard of Philly, as you just mentioned, where you guys are based, but also across the country, right? And one of those, one of the criticisms, or maybe the better word here is like doubts that I hear people shout out, is that it's impossible to work in finance, work with lower income or 
I don't know, economically disadvantaged people and earn a decent living at the same time. But you guys have found a way to do it. So what is it that the rest of us just don't understand? You know, Malcolm, working in line with your values and trying to accomplish things in the world that you think are right and just, we feel will we'll drive out performance, not only in investments, but in business too. And at Zenith, we're really driving to address racial and gender-based wealth inequalities by delivering really accessible, high-quality, flexible financial advice. And our client base you know, may have been without access to high-quality advice in the past, but that doesn't mean that they're economically, dis- economically disadvantaged or lack ambition, right? We've got great ambitious clients that are trying to do big things that just don't have you know, a bunch of savings or generational wealth built up to get high quality financial advice when they need it. So, you know, that applies to our work with with individuals and families, just like it does with the charitable organizations that make up a big part of our work as well. So I don't know if there's anything that anybody doesn't know, but our business is growing and it's one that we feel is addressing the needs, the changing needs of our clients in a way that is in lockstep with what they're communicating and providing us feedback on. And, you know, our business may look different than kind of your historical wealth management firm. But I would argue that our client base is going to do great things in the near and long term. And we want to align ourselves with ambitious clients that, you know, are trying to win in their personal lives, but also in their professional careers, or whether that be, you know, kind of like a traditional job or starting a company or raising capital for a startup or anything, uh, anything else. Well, but let's let's go back for a second to something else that you started out by saying, which was that you guys have a focus on doing what's right or doing good, I think is the the exact phrase you used. And the emphasis on being, I guess the phrase that I'm looking for is ESG focused, right? Environmental, social and governance investing, right? People actually want to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and invest in things that actually um, matter to them in the causes that they care about, right? Investing with a purpose. And that's part of the conversation that I, I wanted to have with you, because I know that that's a really key focus for you guys. And it's not really just window dressing where a lot of times I, as a professional in the personal finance space, attend conferences, have conversations with industry folks and read stuff and, you know, where ESG really seems to just be window dressing. And the argument that people will make is that it's because you have to sacrifice returns in order to do good. And I'd rather have the returns, even if that means I have to own sin stocks, right? Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Even if I have to own that stuff in my portfolio, I want the returns. But it sounds like you're making an argument that that's not necessarily a requirement in order to do well. Absolutely. I'm arguing that case, Malcolm. You know, we, we believe through our own primary experience at Zenith helping clients to develop mission-aligned portfolios that are backed with their values and seek out impacts that you know matter to them and to their constituents if it's a charitable organization. And those portfolios have outperformed in a number of cases over a number of time periods, right? And then there's secondary evidence, right? Books like the XX Edge or other sources out there that really prove the fact that diversity drives optimal outcomes, particularly when management teams of companies or projects are diverse. 
So our investment thesis really lies in the fact that diverse management teams that are focused on solving big problems and creating a more equitable future will drive the best investment performance and alpha over the broader environment of investment opportunities and companies. So, okay. Well, I, I know that, you know, as you sort of mentioned leading up to this, you know, your focus is also partnering with community organizations who support the missions that we're talking about. They support the missions of your in clients in some cases, right? Why is that the work that's important as far as you, I guess, you know, I'm not asking you personally necessarily, if you want to throw that in there, you're welcome to it, but I'm asking more as far as the business is concerned, right? As far as the firm that you've built to this point and are continuing to, to grow, why is it so important to align the mission of the, the firm with that work? You know, Malcolm, it is, it is really important that we build our firm around the values and leading with our values is intentional, not just our own activities, but also for how our clients engage and interact with us. And we feel a lot of our clients and feedback that they give us, us leading with our values is what draws them to our work and wanting to align their foundations or endowments or their financial literacy work with their values is something that we can help them accomplish. We tend to you know, learn from our clients, whether it's an individual and family or a charitable organization. And their objectives and goals and questions kind of drive how we do things in the future. So I think it's important that we also work with clients that inspire us and, you know, their work is really rooted in things that we believe in because, you know, I think it makes the feedback loop that much more, that much more rich. I think it's important that our clients challenge us as well and working with new types of individuals that have potentially different income streams or, you know, we've done a lot more work with entrepreneurs recently and, diving into things like financial modeling for their for their business or helping them conceptualize, you know, an equity raise or a fundraising round is a newer service on our on our platform and it's something that we really find a lot of energy in because one we're we're helping we're helping minority owned businesses really think about how raising capital will change their company and how not only to accurately display what that capital is going to look like in their business plan, but also give them an operating model moving forward is a key element of the business planning process that we think will add value long-term to these companies. So uh, we're not only working with the the type of client we feel most energy about, but we're also providing a service that um, we're getting better at and we feel is vital for changing the scales in society that we're trying to adjust. Well, stay there for a second because I, you know, I initially started out by talking about you guys focus on, you know, institutional investors and endowments and uh, what have you. But you guys then decided, to your point, you needed to also wrap your your arms around the small business community and start to educate folks there, right, from the very beginning stages to even the more mature business stage. I imagine, you know. Why is that then, right? I keep asking why I feel like, but why is that? Like institutions, I understand, right? They have questions about their endowments and grants and donations they receive, and they need guidance around how to be good stewards of that capital and maybe how to align their mission with the the investments themselves and that sort of thing. But why include the small business owner community in that mix and make it, you know, make your lives more complicated? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Look, we want, we want some level of complication, right? I think that's how we learn to get better. And we really listen to what our clients, you know, whether it was an individual or an institution, were, were asking for. And they didn't just want to invest in, you know, public stocks and bonds. 
but they wanted to invest in alternative investments and mm-hmm. early stage companies that are owned or run by minorities or black and brown women um, are things that they were asking for. So we went out to find these companies. And in doing so, we realized that a lot of them needed the, the work that we're providing to them now. Right. And um, it was hard, not only from a relationship standpoint to raise money, but also because, you know, they, they may not have necessarily had the financial model and the operating plan and focus on key performance indicators that investors were looking for. Uh, but I think further, we found a lot of them just didn't have a lead partner to help them, you know, understand their finances, their equity waterfall, their capitalization mm-hmm. table post raising money. Um, and we can be that person to help lead them through that and potentially help set the terms on their raise. And if it's, you know, a, a pool of funds from a client or a fund that we work with, uh, potentially even lead a fundraise into their into their business after providing that work. Well, so let's let's unpack that a little bit more because you said a ton that I think is probably valuable and and I want to make sure that we don't just zoom past it and not give it its its due. So you're talking on one hand about the need to, it sounds like get yourself in gear from the very beginning stages so that as I mentioned in my intro, a potential investor would come along, look at your books, look at your cap table and say, I can see how this business is going to make money. One, I can also see how I fit in here Two, And there's room for me to also have a bite at the apple or see X return on my investment down the road because of the way that this thing is structured and, and based on who owns what, right? But at what point do you start to even introduce that level of conversation with these founders that you're talking about, right? Because there's obviously a place where, or you maybe you'll tell me different, but I imagine there's a place where it's too early, right? And then there's also that place where you look and you go, man, you should have did this two years ago. So like, where is the the place where you you start to recommend to folks that like they really start to think of themselves and their business in such a way that they get organized, get formalized, start to build out the cap table that you're talking about, those sorts of things that make them look and feel like a grown-up business, for lack of a better way to say it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, you know, I think there's there's probably two components to that. One is just asking questions and being curious on our on our behalf, right? But two is you know sharing representative work from other things we've done with other companies and founders. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the questions though, I think are asking about how much they're going to raise and why and what they're going to do with funds and, you know, really diving into the reason people say they want to raise money. I think just, just highlights if somebody's thought that far in advance or thought about it in a way that is relating to kind of the potential payout for them long-term or how many people they're going to be able to hire or the change that they're trying to drive in society, like what the impact metrics will be based on, you know, bringing on external partners. So you know, being curious is is huge, right? Can you uh, say a little more about that though? Because we're talking about impact investing, we're talking about goals based investing, we're talking about ESG, and so your answer might be a little bit different than traditionally what I hear from people. So I'm genuinely curious about this. When you ask that question to the founders that you're talking about, why do you even want to raise funds? What is the answer generally? I'm asking you to generalize here, but what answer do you typically get from these folks who are mission driven? like you? It's a range of things, right? I think it's it's creating software. It's hiring more people on their team. Mm-hmm. It's expanding their product set or service offering. 
it's wanting to just have a partner that is more experienced in the space that gives them advice and just the check, right? So uh, it's a range of things. But to, to your point, I think when we deliberately ask about what impact are you trying to drive or mm-hmm. what are your impact metrics, those things tend to be, right, we're trying to address this about food insecurity or there's a reason that the founder has created the business, right? We, we want to create safer products for ethnic hair, right? Like these are, these are not necessarily quantifiable future visions from these founders, but we're asking them how they plan to address them and measure them. And I don't think there's a perfect answer, right? But socializing it with the founder at an early stage really, I think, uncovers the reason that they're doing the business. And I also think it, it illustrates how their future customers and partners and supporters will align and value themselves with the company. So, you know, when we, when we ask why people are raising money, the traditional answers come out, encouraging them to think about what type of impact they want to drive, right? If they're hiring a bunch of people, how are they going to promote staff diversity, right? And like, make sure they have a, a diverse set of teammates or suppliers, making sure they're, uh, if they're manufacturing clothes, for example, making sure they're doing that in ethical fashion. All those things are questions that we'll ask and try to formalize the process of what delivering and driving on an impact really means. Hey there, listeners. It's Eric with an A. And I'm interrupting the show for just a moment to tell you about our newest offering, the Tech Money Guide to Restricted Stock Units. This guide was developed to teach those who are paid in RSUs to develop a plan for how and when to convert those shares into actual dollars as well as how to incorporate them into your overall personal financial plan. You may have already heard episode 50 where Malcolm described the guide in detail, as well as his own philosophy and rules of thumb when it comes to managing this valuable form of equity compensation. If you haven't, no problem. We would still encourage you to head on over to tech-money.com and download a free copy of the guide today. There's also a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Again, that web address is tech-money.com And you can download a free copy of the guide right there from the homepage. In keeping with the promise of this show, our hope is that the Tech Money Guide to Restricted Stock Units helps make you just a little smarter about your money. Now back to the show. Yeah, see, I just feel like we know different people. Like when I say, when I say, hey, you know, uh, so-and-so founder, why is it that you're raising a Series A or whatever? The answer inevitably will be some variation of the word growth because that's how we're going to grow. And I never hear anybody talk about the impact that they're going to be able to make and how by scaling the business, they can also scale their impact or they can also, you know, reach X number of additional people that they can't reach the way they're operating here and by bootstrapping it going forward and so forth and so on. And so I appreciate you uh, humoring me there because I just wanted to tease out the fact that like, it does exist. It's just not necessarily at the forefront of everything sexy when we think about the world of investing in a startup, right? Like from not to disparage them, but when I think about like TechCrunch, for example, and the companies that they cover, it's rare for me to to come across a, a feature on there about a company that the mission is the focus above all else, not just a sidecar. You know what I mean? Yes, there's the companies that are like 5% of every widget we sell, we're going to donate to help slow global warming or something. And it's kind of just a side 
show. It's not necessarily their main thing. So anyway, I, I just, you know, I find it fascinating that like there's so many of those people out there who are building things because they want to help solve a problem on a broader scale and not just sell a product, get rich, buy an island, ride off into the sunset. So anyway, but like one of the things, you know, that I, I'm, I'm also talked to, uh, I'm also amazed by, you know, when I talk to founders or small business owners or however you think of yourself is how much they're winging it. Right. And I kind of mentioned this before, kind of asked a question before, but I'll ask it a different way because I, I've found that, you know, oftentimes founders are just trying to get through the end of the day, right? Put out as many fires as possible, make it home to their family before, I don't know, the entire house is dark because everybody they love has already gone to bed, right? But I'll ask you this, you know, at the end of that long windup, because, you know, I think you're somewhat uniquely qualified to answer it in this space, given, you know, you guys even offer bookkeeping solutions and like basic services like that to your business owners. My question is, at what point do you recommend that folks get serious and begin to really formalize things like hiring an accountant or a bookkeeper or investing in software even to help them manage their cap table? Maybe it's not a, a person or a, a group. Maybe it's even software. Like, At what point do I need to be thinking like, I have to approach this business differently? Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's really when you or the founder determines that they want to raise external financing, right? Okay. That is the, that's the trigger point to say, okay, well, somebody else is going to have to do due diligence. You're going to have to convey to somebody what your pre and post money cap table looks like and your financials look like. Um, so let's get that work started now. Right. And, you know, to the, to the point about, um, you know, people are trying to raise money to grow. I, I would argue, and maybe this is like, maybe I'm just, I could be biased here, but if a company is not growing, then it probably shouldn't raise money because um, mm -hmm. then it won't be able to pay its investors back long term. So, um, you know, I think that's that's part of it. And you know, when they when when people tell us like, "Well, I want to raise money," and we don't have a growth plan, Malcolm, to that point, or there's not historicals that would suggest that the company is on its way to be able to raise money and pay everybody back long term, and the founders make money and. They generate all the things that are good in the world that they want to generate. You know, we have to help them put that growth plan into place and doing so through a financial model is that's the advice we deliver. That's the, you know, creating the model and doing the bookkeeping is the work that we feel is required to get to really high quality advice that yeah. we can de deliver on what the growth plan looks like, right? How to create reasonable assumptions that are both compelling, but, you know, fair and, ethical, right? Those services really get us to the point where we can help that founder conceptualize like what it means to raise the money and like what they'll do with it and um, how they'll use it to grow in, in your example or to create the change in society that they want to create, right? Airbnb is an example. They want to create a world where anyone can belong anywhere. They have their core business, obviously, but then they also house homeless folks during COVID. Like that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's kind of, it seems like it's core to their operations and that's probably not measurable. It's certainly measurable in financials, but it's measurable in a different way of like success on housing homeless folks and really going forward on that mission that I, that I said a little bit earlier. So those metrics are things that we can help hash out during the financial modeling process to say, if you hire all these people and this is the financial projections, how many people will you be able to serve, right? What will they look like? What will the impact be? I think it's easier to conceptualize once you build that model around it. 
it's funny that you mention the point where you go to raise outside capital being a point when you really need to do your homework and start to to formalize things because i always kind of chuckle internally whenever i talk to somebody who they're looking to borrow money or raise money from somewhere and they immediately begin talking about what they're not going to do for that money like i'm not going to personally guarantee a loan i'm not going to put up any collateral i'm not going to take a high interest rate i'm not going to give up too much equity whatever it is and then you ask them about like i don't know they're like done score or their business's credit score and they don't have one right and i'm like well you know you're paying something right one way or another as an unproven entity you know you're gonna have to pay something but like uh, again asking you to paint with a broad brush here but like you've been in these conversations far more than i have and rolled up your sleeves to really get people to a to a place and i, I assume away from some of this pattern of thinking like why do you think that is that people come in with with that attitude? Is it not enough education out there about what's realistic or something else? You know, I think people always, you know, they, they want to get the best terms for themselves, right? And if you haven't done it before, it's hard to conceptualize what you'll need to give up to do it in the future, right? But I think the more you raise money and the more you go through loan applications or whatever it may be, you kind of get a sense of the things you'll have to give up to get the money now. But if you haven't done it before, to the point about, you know, I don't know if it's educational. I think it's just experiential. Mm, right? okay. uh, if you haven't done it before, it's hard to really imagine how people are going to negotiate or what the market, you know, will kind of dictate as like the terms of your round. Because one, I think it, it changes, right? As the market environment changes, think about how startups were raising money a year ago versus today. Yeah. Uh, and two, you know, I think the types of capital change, right? People investing in preferred securities versus convertible notes. Now people have safe notes. You know, I think things also change from a term standpoint. It's difficult to really pinpoint and build a, you know, succinct framework around what people will need to give up. But I think to your point, when people are at the super early stage and they don't really have any operating history, I think it's important to understand that you're probably going to have to give up a lot, right? Yeah. And that's a conversation where, you know, I think we're, we'll want to encourage and say, Sure, we can we can model out what this will look like now, but it's not going to be that attractive. How can you maybe operate the business for a year and yeah. create some goals based on this model to hit? So in a year, you can raise money at better terms potentially. Um, so that's a conversation I think is it's important to have. You know, I think we those are sobering sometimes for a founder, for right? Sure. But it's 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 on us to kind of give our best advice and not sugarcoat stuff. We've had some tough conversations on valuations too, right? As companies go to raise and they have specific terms in mind, you know, sometimes that being realistic with, with optimistic, optimistic founders, you know, just like me, I understand the, you know, it's the struggle there, but sometimes being, you know, uh, honest with founders about evaluation or um, how much money they may be able to raise is a tough sobering conversation as well. But that's another reason we provide the services. We, we got to be real with people. We can't sugarcoat stuff and make them believe things that can be true that we don't believe can be true. But Well, let's, Let's dig in a little bit more there, like before moving away from that point, because you've mentioned this idea of, you know, not idea, you've, you've mentioned financial modeling a few times and financial forecasting a few times. And I started off talking about cap tables and actually monitoring, you know, cash flow statement and so forth and so on. But like, let's tease that out a little bit more. And can you say a little bit more about what goes into good financial modeling and forecasting? Right. I imagine there's some level of, I need to know what my top line revenue is going to look like this year, next year, the year after. But what about those 
gears that you turn underneath the surface that are going to help drive top line revenue in one direction or another? Are those key performance indicators that are going to actually help move the needle in one direction or another? Like, what are you actually modeling out with folks that doesn't overwhelm them or go over their heads, you know, this early on in the game? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. You know, to the point about going too deep or over their head, keeping it simple is, is really important in this process. You know, we try to project out the three financial statements, income statement, cash flow statement, and a balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And we use specific assumptions and toggles for the business to help project that out. Some of those toggles include what are their revenue streams, right? How many units per stream will they sell? What's the pricing per unit? What's the monthly growth rate on that pricing? When are they going to have the first month in sales for that revenue stream? Right. And then we, we look at, so that's the top line, right? What are the components of their income? And then we're looking at costs of goods sold and other expenses, right? What, what does it cost them to sell the product? And also what are some of the ancillary operating expenses that go with operating a business like marketing or legal and professional services, right? Um, and then importantly, we look at this, the staffing model, right? And what personnel they want to hire in the future and when they'll hire them and what their salary could be. And those assumptions basically help drive the creation of those pro forma or future you know, projection, income statement, pro forma statement and balance sheet, right? And if a, if, a, if a client is thinking about raising money, we will also create a pro forma capitalization table to help them understand, okay, here's who owns what shares now, here's what new shares you're proposing or the convertible nature of the shares you're proposing based on the vehicle you're using, a safe or a preferred stock or a loan. And then we help them think about, well, if you do maybe 2 million at a safe or 4 million at a safe, how will that affect you in the future? And using those terms as assumptions and toggles helps us, you know, keep the, the model intact, keep it simple with the entrepreneur and founder and give them something that's editable moving forward. I think that's the key value and differentiator for us is we help them make models that are editable and can be used in many different scenario planning and, you know, with many different components of their business going in and out or changing. So as they operate their business over time, they have a, they have a model that they use for their goals and budgeting and, you know, really operating the business. Can you define a safe for me in case I didn't graduate from a Y Combinator cohort? Yeah. So safe, you know, it's just a, it's a form of equity financing. So, you know, this is a, a, an investor investing in the equity of your company. Safe is a, is a simple agreement for future equity. It's really just a promise that allows an investor to purchase a specific number of shares for an agreed upon price at some point in the future. You know, it is probably the most founder-friendly type of equity financing mm-hmm. um, in the market. Um, so founders, I think, can really benefit from setting the right terms on a safe note. You know, a year ago, when folks were raising money left and right, and interest rates were low, and there was a lot of money in the system, you know, a lot of founders raised on safe notes. Today, you know, I'm not seeing quite as many safe deals get done, right? We're seeing, you know, more preferred, preferred stock or convertible notes. Uh, more, you know, investor-friendly terms being set with, you know, those types of structures. But it will probably swing back. And it was great for Y Combinator to create the safe because it doesn't really require like a huge legal effort for the mm-hmm. company to raise money with a safe note, which is a huge benefit again to the founder versus other methods. Uh, but hopefully people continue to innovate on those financing structures, hopefully for the benefit of founders. You know, as we look to advise and manage funds on behalf of clients to invest in 
early stage companies or impact investment opportunities. Like we're trying to be innovative as well on the terms that we set with the entrepreneurs and the companies that allow them to, you know, execute and really benefit from their financial modeling and long-term their wealth generation from the business. Yeah. What's funny is, I guess not haha funny, but ironic. You talk about the safe being sort of the, the deal formula of choice for folks while the getting is good and the market is hot and interest rates are low and everybody's feeling happy. And if you want to raise, you can raise and there's funds of funds of funds that are, you know, helping you get there. That's probably the moment when you don't necessarily need the cookie cutter rubber stamp deal terms that let you know that everybody is kind of getting the same thing. But then as we get to a market where we're in now, where things have become a lot more tight, a lot more heavily scrutinized, raises are a lot smaller than they probably you know, would have wanted to be or would have been two years ago, so forth and so on. This is kind of the time when you wish you did have some more templated deal terms rather than having to dig in and really now have to understand whether this is predatory or not. Right, whether the the uh, deal premium that you're having to to take is the best you're going to get, and so forth and so on, and so it's kind of the pendulum has swung in opposite directions of when we kind of need that formula and things to be standardized versus when there's room for a lot more uh, uh, fluctuation and and creativity and so forth and so on from from VC. So anyway, just you know, my something random I'm 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 thinking about as you're talking because I'm I'm reading more and more about how deal terms are are getting to borderline predatory in some instances, right? And in in yeah. these, you know, risk premiums that VCs are putting on it and and thinking about it. But anyway, like I I could take us down an entirely different rabbit hole with that one. But before we get ready to wrap, you know, what would be your main message to folks who, you know, recognize the importance of getting on top of their numbers, right? But the thought of it overwhelms them, right? They don't even know where to begin. What would you say to those folks? I would say outside advice always helps. I seek out objective advice in my own life and it's been a benefit. We see for our clients, you know, getting have providing objective opinions on their on their business is useful, especially when thinking about, you know, giving up control of the business potentially to outside investors in, in some capacity. So even if you're not doing financial modeling and really in-depth projections, at least getting outside opinions on your business and the fact that you are, you know, thinking about going to market with a fundraise is paramount, right? Because people will ask questions and, you know, give you feedback. And, you know, if you need somebody to talk to about your business, we're, you know, we're here, reach out. But I think is a, a big takeaway is objective opinions and advice really make a difference and they should always be sought after and are valuable, whether it's from your own clients, whether it's from supporters, whether it's from strategic partners, please go out there and solicit that advice. And if anybody has some advice for anything I've said to that, I'd love to talk with them as well. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, my last question likely has absolutely nothing to do with, uh, investing or finance or anything else. You can kind of take your, your Zenith hat off for a second and relax your shoulders a little bit, but let's say for a moment. So you never found your passion for it and you had to find a different way to occupy your days, but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Reading a lot, playing a lot of pickup sports, basketball, soccer, running, but reading a lot, you know, I, I really enjoy reading and Running, running a business takes away the, the time of 
um, you know, being able to just immerse myself in, in things that I'm, that I'm interested in reading. I'm reading right now Survival of the City uh, by Edward Glaser and David Cutler. Great book about just, you know, the future of urban life in an age of isolation that we just saw. Yeah, I'm reading The XX Edge as well, which talks about gender lens investing. But I've been on these books for too long, Malcolm. Like, I, <laughs> you I didn't have to invest them. in an uh, Audible membership. Audible, yeah, I've, I've given it a try, but maybe I'll go back to it. That's that's not a bad idea. We'll get you there. But uh, no, thanks, man. This was great. I, I really appreciate you being so generous uh, with your time. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or Zenith after this goes live? Yeah, where um, you know, our handles on social media are at net worth zenith. You know, my my LinkedIn is uh is Jason Michael Ray. And people can reach out. My email is Jason at networthzenith.com. So feel free to hit me up. But yeah, Malcolm, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's great to connect in this capacity. And I, I look forward to hopefully more conversations. You got it, man. Well, on that note, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? It would be my pleasure, Jason. Again, I'm just going to echo what Malcolm said. Thank you so much for being on the show. Learned a ton and uh, got a kind of a glimpse of where your heart and soul are uh, with that business. So thank you so much for sharing. Malcolm, of course, thank you for facilitating this and bringing another amazing guest to the show. And our last thank you, of course, is to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review as this will help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, and you can do so by emailing them to podcast at tech-money.com. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation.